Welcome to the Turfgrass Hotline. I'm Frank Rossi. Turfgrass Hotline is brought to you by our partners at Dryject, the only machine that aerates top dresses and amends all in one pass. Intelligro, makers of Civitas, a fungicide that's so much more. And the Plant Food Company, developing professional nutrient management programs since 1946. Always a lively conversation with my guest on this episode, Dr. Paul Koch, who tells us about early onset of summer patch. This difficult root pathogen thrives when soils are not well aerated. I bet your investment in Dryject services is really paying off. What? You don't use Dryject? Well, it would have paid off whether you're experiencing heavy rainfall or excessive traffic. The increased air and water infiltration from Dryject services help moderate soil temperatures and maintain root function. Dryject is a flexible and affordable service used by many of the great golf courses in the United States. Contact your local Dryject service representative or visit dryject.com. Welcome to the Turfgrass Hotline, Professor Paul Koch from the great Midwest. It's been wet and then all of a sudden quick dry. Is that correct, Paul? Yeah, it's been wet, it's been dry, it's been hot, it's been cold, and we've had everything, Frank. It's been, uh, you know, it's always a roller coaster in this part of the country, but this year it's been extra highs and extra lows. And so has that helped or hurt the snow mold work? We had what would be... I would describe it as a relatively normal, if not so snowy winter. You do work where there's reliable snow. How did your snow mold trials go? Let's start there. Yeah, we had the most consistent snow mold over all of our sites in the 15 years I've been here at Wisconsin doing snow mold research. And it was interesting. You know, we always get snow mold up north. That's mm-hmm. a given. But down here in Madison and Milwaukee and even northern Illinois, we got a fair amount of snow mold. And, and the reason for that was is even though we had a short period of snow cover, it was basically January 1st to March 1st, so really 60 days right on the head. Mm. But the turf was completely unhardened off going into that snow cover. I mean, it was, even though we had an early cold snap in October and November, Mm. we had six inches of snow on Halloween. The kids were trick-or-treating through in their snow boots. Mm. But then, you know, Christmas Day here at my house, we were out in the back patio because it was 55 degrees, and that grass was as green as it was in July. So we had just really unhardened turf, then we had snowfall on basically on Jan 1. That stuck till March 1. And uh, we had a lot of snow mold, the, the most snow mold that we've seen on untreated turf here in, in at least 15 years. Not a lot of breakthrough. If you had a good program down, you were pretty much good. But a fair amount of snow mold because of that really unhardened turf. And so, you know, climate change, we talk about that all the time. Traditionally, I've kind of talked about climate change making snow mold less severe because there's less snowfall. There's later snowfall. But sort of the flip side of that, the confounding factor there is that it's also going to make the fall warmer, which may not allow the turf to harden off as much, mm-hmm. and you get more snow mold that way. So, you know, it's going to be kind of a case-by-case situation. Now, what you, what's interesting to hear you say, there's two things I want to unpack. One is that the fungicides applied at the typical time in October, November, even through the roller coaster, you said still held on pretty good by the time you did your rating. So you got really good control from a wide range of established spray programs? Yeah, if you had a good program down, you got good control. And, and we've done a lot of work looking at snow mold fungicides and how they persist. Mm-hmm. And we know that, you know, if there's a snow melt event or if there is a rainfall event during the winter after you apply your snow mold, 
most of that product's gone. So it's not like the product persists through the winter. The product breaks down in most cases, probably within the first four to six weeks after you apply it. But it's the impact that that fungicide had on the fungal population, right? You put it down whenever you put it down mm-hmm. and then you knock it back. And then it just, they're slow growing fungi. It takes them time to recover from that injury from the fungicide. Mm-hmm. And uh, in most cases, it, it doesn't recover. Now, if we would have had another month or another six weeks of snow cover, it, it might've been enough time for the fungus to recover and cause disease. But because our period was really so short this year, didn't happen. Because guys sometimes get lulled into a false sense of security, Paul, where when you don't have gray snow mold for a while in upstate New York or Madison, Wisconsin, because it's been warm, do some guys cheat a little bit on their snow mold control? They don't put their Cadillac program down or they cut back on rates a little bit. Did you see any of that? Yeah, I mean, I think especially in the southern Great Lakes, the southern Midwest, I think you've been seeing people apply less and less snowmobile because the evidence has been that snowmobile isn't as severe it was for the most part 10 years ago. Before this year, we hadn't had more than 10% diseases in our non-treated controls in Madison in, you know, in 10 or 12 years. So I think the evidence was that the disease wasn't as severe down here, but then you do get a year every now and then where the pressure is, is pretty high. So everything's a give and take. How much risk do you want to take? Is it worth it for you to spend that Cadillac program on your course every year, wall to wall, to have that reassurance? Or do you want to take that chance that in most years you probably will be okay? Okay, so the roller coaster beginning to the growing season, what does that do for recovery? Now, if you're talking about really good devastation in the control plots, the untreated plots, is that snow mold actually killing those plants or is it recovering to any degree? And how has the roller coaster been of the growing season helping it to recover? Yeah, so it depends on the snow mold. So Ischicariensis is really more of a crown infecting snow mold. So we know that if you have that speckled snow mold, that typical Ischicariensis that we normally have up north, that can really do some serious damage to the plant and kill the crown, which of course will kill the plant. Then you need to recover from a surrounding plants. Pink snow mold and, and the tifula incarnata, those typically don't kill the plant entirely. But, you know, our springs, they always suck here in the Midwest. The, the growing conditions just aren't very good normally. We get a couple of days of growing conditions and then, you know, the wind shifts out of the north and that wind comes down from Canada and then we're, we're stuck in the 40s for three weeks. So uh, you can never really count on a great spring for recovery. And we actually went back and looked at a couple of our plots in mid-May, right? They lost their snow cover on like March 7th. Mm-hmm. We went back and looked at them in mid-May, and you could clearly see the scars were still there on the non-treated control plots. They were filling in, and they're, you know, they're filled in by now. But what we've noticed in other trials in the past is if we go back and we look at those non-treated control plots in, say, July or August, a lot of times we can see the POA that's, that's come and filled in those scars rather than the bent grass filling in on its own. Yeah, and there's the rub, right? Now you're on the treadmill. And, and I got to tell you, one of the things that keeps coming up in these other hotline conversations I've been having, Paul, has been the root issues a lot of guys are seeing. I know the TDL is taking samples in different ways and the way they're taking the information in, and that's a good way for all of you guys to keep a barometer on what's going on. But what is your sense of how root diseases and root issues are beginning to shape up on the heels of the snow mold and on the beginning of the dry anthracnose dollar spot season. Yeah. So I, what I will say is what was interesting from Iowa, our neighbors down to the Southwest, we had several samples from Iowa and they were obscenely wet. Uh, They just had front after front to stall over them. and, And we were, I would say relatively wet in Wisconsin and Minnesota, Illinois until this recent dry period. 
but they were really wet in Iowa. And we had a, a cluster of samples that came up right in the same time that Kurt found Pythium root rot on those samples. So that's a, a disease that I know is, is much more common. You, you get down the mid-Atlantic, the southeast area, the transition zone. But certainly when we have really wet periods, especially early in the, in the year, mm-hmm. uh, we can see some pretty significant cases of Pythium root rot, and they tend to be localized kind of one area of the Midwest. So it's not like you'd see it widespread over the entire Midwest, but certainly we, we saw it localized there and it was really just a result of the really wet conditions. So you should be able to diagnose that, right? In other words, you know, even if you've got good drainage and I see some of Rick Tegmeyer's tweets sometimes, he was getting inundated uh, early on the Iowa golf courses, as you talk about, even if you've got good sand-based systems, with the amount of rainfall that they were getting, they can still be problematic. But other than those identified conditions that, you know, mostly are climatic, do you recommend a Pythium root rot preventative program in your neck of the woods, Paul? No, not up here. Not unless you've seen it in the past. It's right. just, it's so localized and so based, right. you know, right. one county can have a cell sit on them for a couple hours and then get three inches of rain and they'll get picking root rot, but two counties over, they, they won't get it. So it's really localized. And unless you've seen it severely in the past, or you have a lot of areas that drain poorly, uh, we definitely uh, see it more often in, you know, the kind of the low areas of the green that don't drain as well. So uh, if you have a really poorly draining golf course, maybe then I could see it. But no, I don't normally recommend it as preventative. Okay, so now we were shut down, and I don't know what was happening in Wisconsin. I haven't followed it as closely, but we had a lot of confusion here in the Northeast early on, Paul. We're growing, we're not growing, we regulate more, get all your sprays out, because you don't know, are you going to be able to work, or are they going to be able to play? There was a 10-week period when it really wasn't clear what was going on. A lot of guys use some heavy growth regulators, and now some labs are reporting, hmm, Maybe I regulated too much. Boy, I'm seeing some anthracnose in places I don't normally see. Are you starting to see any after effects of what we went through early on, number one? And number two, uh, how often do you see overregulation and, and anthracnose issues at this time? Yeah, so uh, we weren't as shut down for as long in, in the state. There was certainly a period of confusion there in, in March and early April, but uh, then things sort of cleared up as golfers were allowed back on the golf course and, and made into while still more of a skeletal size crew was ongoing. So we've seen certainly more than normal where the poet just doesn't look right. Yeah. And we're attributing that to some overregulation to some really high rates from four, six, eight weeks ago. So I think we're not seeing any death necessarily. Uh, we have seen some cases of anthracnose. It's a little bit early for anthracnose to be developing for us in, in the Midwest. Normally that's a, a mid to later summer disease for us. So we are starting to see some anthracnose pop up and that's likely a result of some overregulation from a little while ago. Not something we normally see the overregulation. Typically it's if you have relatively high rates of PGR and you're mixing it with like a, a DMI fungicide that has some additional regulation. That's normally where we see the overregulation issues here in the Midwest. You know, what is interesting, Paul, I've noticed it where I've been able to look at growing grass over the last few years. It's been so wet in your neck of the woods and in my neck of the woods uh, over the last several years that even a couple of weeks of dry weather really brings on a very immediate drought stress. Uh, I'm wondering if you're seeing some of that And do you sometimes see that associated with other problems? Because our plants really, especially fairway plants, aren't really well adapted to these dry conditions because we just haven't had them 
for very long. Are you seeing some early signs of any drought stress that leads to other problems? We haven't seen, you know, widespread drought stress. There's a lot of people pulling hoses. What we noticed just in the past seven to 10 days is that a lot of take-all symptoms were firing up. And you really need to start getting some drier conditions for take-all to start firing, right? Because the fungus just impacts some of the root tissue and is impacting the plant's ability to take up water. So really, if you think about it, when you're looking at take-all patch symptoms, you're just looking at drought symptoms in the plant because they can't take up the water they need. And so we were so wet for so long, and then we've started to see some take-all patch symptoms fire up in the past week or two, and then some additional general LDS. But we see that all the time when you have a prolonged stretch of really hot, wet, humid weather. And then you make that transition, you know, we're lucky enough being in the north, we have fronts come through and cool us back down in the 70s and drop those dew points down in the 50s. But when you have that drier air, it means that the plants are transpiring faster and they're going to dry out faster. So we see that every year when we have a really prolonged, wet, hot, humid period and that front comes through and dries things out. And then you just see LDS pop up like crazy all around the area. And so uh, following that line of thinking, whether it's the root zone being knocked off by pythium root rot or take all patch, are these harbingers of summer patch? Is POA issues just on the horizon if dry conditions continue with regard to summer patch? Yeah, we're, we're already starting to see some uh, summer patch in POA, which is really, really early for us. Mm. We typically don't see summer patch in POA. The symptoms develop at least until, you know, late July into early August. And, and Kurt just told me the other day that he diagnosed uh, his first summer patch of the year on POA uh, from the Madison area last week. So that's really early for us. Probably a product of some wet conditions this spring. We're seeing, you know, some of that roller coaster, some of those hot spells really promote that summer patch fungal growth. And then when you dry out, you're going to see those symptoms develop. So I would anticipate, at least from what we've seen so far, a pretty significant summer patch year in the Midwest. Mm. Well, let me wrap up by bringing up a disease that you've been an intellectual force behind getting people to use this Smith-Kearns model. The great work you've done over the years and getting it into the literature and being persistent and making it part of the vernacular. It's in the Syngenta Greencast thing. This is just such great work, Paul, because this is the direction that the next generation of turfgrass managers are going to be responsible to, especially when it comes to large-scale applications to fairways. And I see this as the biggest tool to use in managing your fairway control. Now, in looking at some of the greencast stuff for you guys, you're not necessarily into the high-risk period yet. There's some risk. So let's just start out with when you don't have low risk, are guys still recommended to make that early application of a fungicide? Or can you still just wait till your risk gets high and play the ball game from there? Yeah, it's a really good question. We have a research study out looking at that exact thing, actually. So basically, the, the thought process is behind the study is if you apply that early season app before the model says you should spray, mm-hmm. can you use a higher spray threshold with the model? For the entire rest of the year. That's the basis behind the study. So we're in the second year of that study. The first year was kind of, uh, we didn't get great results in, in this study. For the most part, I still like that early season app. This year, it ended up being a really late app if you use the growing degree day models to time the application. So I still like it, but you mentioned the large fairway applications. And I think that moving forward, that's going to be a real benefit of the model. We're working with Toro and the USGA 
on using the dollar spot model, putting it into smaller weather stations and putting multiple stations around the golf course, then to tell you which areas of the golf course actually need to be sprayed, right? It's highly unlikely that all 30 acres of your fairways need to be sprayed at the same time. And so what we found this year, we're pretty excited about some of the results. We have them scattered around University Ridge Golf Course here in Madison. Definitely certain areas of the golf course have much higher you know, 15, 20, 25 points higher on the model than other parts of the golf course. So then you would, you know, some areas of the golf course, you might need to spray, you know, six, seven, eight times. Other areas of the golf course, maybe once or twice, but you can't do that if you're a superintendent, unless you have the data to support that. So we're pretty excited about some of these preliminary results we're gathering, and uh, we're going to wrap that study up this year. And again, that's funded by the USGA along with Toro. I'm so glad to see more widespread acceptance of it. I've been a big advocate for using these predictive models as part of what you're doing to make decisions. And I have to say the little bit of undercurrent I've heard uh, in the industry around how having disease resistant genetics in your stand really changes the game for that plus the predictive model is really allowing you to stretch things out and maybe even compensate for, for some of these heavy pressure areas on the golf course where you have a little bit more genetic resistance. This model has given me justification as a superintendent to go to my golfers and say, listen, I got to spray these fairways 10 times a year for these particular problems. If we regrass to this bent grass, here's what I think it's going to be. Is that a reasonable argument to use for also using the model to demonstrate how little you might need to spray with resistant material? Yeah, without a doubt. I mean, so Bruce Clark has done some of this work at Rutgers. And, and the, so the model was developed for the most part on Pencross, right? So it's no. developed on a highly susceptible uh, cultivar. Uh, and so Bruce Clark has found when he did some follow-up work that's still going on out at Rutgers, and I believe James Hempling was involved with that. Uh, actually, I know he was because I was on his committee. That's right. What he found is that the model tracked really well with the number of dollar spots that developed on Pencross. It was, it was a perfect line. It, it, James had a slide that I show in my presentations because it's great. But then if you looked at how the model predicted dollar spots development on declaration or a, a, a resistant cultivar, it doesn't track well at all. And what, and what they found is that, you know, your threshold, if, if we recommend 20 to 25% as a threshold for Pencross, mm -hmm. as a conservative threshold, you know, they're finding that, you know, 40 to 45 is conservative threshold on some of these resistant cultivars, which immediately takes the number of times you spray from, you know, you can go and back calculate, right? Yeah. You can, all you need is your yeah. average daily air, air temperature and average relative humidity, and you can stick it into Excel files and you can calculate what your pressure was for the last season. I do this right. in a lot of the talks that I give for the local area where I'm giving the talk. And you can tell, you know, you can say we were only over 40% three times. So you could use that argument to say, if we regrassed, we're going to be spraying, you know, here we are with Pencross, we're over this 25 threshold 10 times. If we're at declaration, we're over it three times. That's a relatively easy thing you can do. And uh, there's some cool research that Bruce Clark and his team out at Rutgers are doing to, to really give the data to support that. And this is a really big deal because especially what we're seeing, yes, golf is busier than I've ever seen it, but I still don't see a lot of places at full staff. There still seems to be a lot of places where full staff is going to be tricky in some areas still just because of the nature of the work and positive testing and things like that. And so obviously, Paul, as we wrap up, I always want you to give a plug for the Turf Disease Diagnostic Lab and Kurt's great work that you do down there. 
what kinds of uh, adaptations have you made uh, in response to COVID? And what can we tell people who want to send samples in for diagnosis? Sure. So Kurt Hockemeyer, he's our turf grass diagnostic lab manager, does a great job. We accept samples from anywhere in, in the United States. We obviously focus on on the Midwest, but we receive samples from, from all over cool season grasses anywhere in the country. Actually, we received samples from Oklahoma last year, quite a few. Excellent. All the information that you need for submitting a sample is on our website at tdl.wisc.edu. Really, the only modification at this point for our samples due to the COVID situation is we don't accept an in-person drop-off. You can drive them to the facility and, and drop them at the door and call us and we'll come out and pick it up, but we can't accept any sort of people inside the building. Other than that, though, we are fully functioning. You know, we're not like uh, Mr. Buckley. It's We're in the lab. We're not in our living room. So we, uh, <laughs> he got in all kinds of trouble for that. <laughs> I, I bet he did. I have absolutely no doubt that he got in trouble for that, knowing how universities work. But as far as accepting mailed samples, we are, we're at full staff. Kurt's in the, the lab every day. So no changes from a mailing staff. What, what about uh, field day? Are you guys going virtual this year or are you going to scrap it for the year? We haven't made the official announcement, but we but we will be virtual. We're gonna we're gonna release a series of videos Excellent. in August. You can look for further information in the official announcement that'll be coming out relatively soon. But we'll be virtual and we'll record a series of videos that will all be released in mid-August. So I'm gonna we're actually gonna record our first video tomorrow. Excellent. And as we record this, it appears baseball will be back in session, and I'm sure you're gonna get yourself over to Miller Park. If they let anybody in, they're going to let you and Augie and your wife in <laughs> as uh, VIP. I hope so. I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm, I might just camp out in front of the stadium and hope they let me in. Thanks for joining me, Paul. Appreciate you taking the time. Take care of yourself. All the best. Thanks, Frank. Same to you. Effervescent Badger, Dr. Paul Koch, is an associate professor of turf grass pathology at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, where he conducts basic and applied research on turf grass diseases, teaches courses in pathology, and with Kurt Hockemeyer oversees the turf grass diagnostic lab that you can become a subscriber to. Visit tdl.wisc.edu. The Turfgrass Hotline is brought to you by our friends at Dryject, the only machine that aerates top dresses in a men's in one pass. Intelligro, makers of Civitas, a fungicide that's so much more, and the plant food company developing professional nutrient management programs since 1946. The Turfgrass Hotline is recorded and produced at Rep Studios in downtown Ithaca, New York by Nate Richardson. Big thanks to marketing and business management John Kiger and executive producer Peter McCormick. I'm Frank Rossi. Thank you for joining me.